This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Hey, Cultivated listeners, today is an exciting day for me because I get to share this conversation that I had with Brian Koppelman. Brian, along with his partner, David Levine, is the creator of the Showtime series, Billions. They wrote Ocean's 13, Rounders. Brian also wrote a movie called Solitary Man. He's done stand-up comedy, he's worked in the music industry, and he's the host of my favorite podcast. It's called The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Now, Brian's probably an odd guest for a show about faith and work because he's an atheist, But while he and I see the world in very different ways, we share some common values. In particular, I think Brian's wisdom about work, especially as it relates to creative work, is deeply true and reveals a lot about what it means to be an artist and to be human. And so in the conversation on the show today, we're focusing on those shared things. We don't get into any of the great debates about the things that separate us. Instead, we focused on a concern for meaningful work and meaningful living. We spoke via Skype, and you'll pretty much hear the whole interview unedited. I got to say, I'm super thankful to Brian for making time for this, and I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Your show was so transformative for me. It came at like this perfect moment in my life where I've been in ministry for 15 years. I was in the middle of writing a book, and when you talk about being blocked, like, man, I was I was stuck. I'd rewritten the first chapter of this book 10 times. I probably had 50,000 words of one chapter that I couldn't get through. And I fell into this really dark place, and part of it was, like, I'd written a couple of things before. This one, I wanted it to be really personal, and it had sort of some memoir threads running through it. And the vulnerability of that terrified me. And sure. also the the sense of, like... I didn't just want to like finish the project. Like I wanted it to be really good. <laughs> no, um, of course. That, but that's, you know, on a first draft of anything in almost any endeavor, wanting it to be good right away and having an idealized version of it in your head that you're determined to meet out of the gate is a killer. It stops the forward progress. You want to have those standards. You need those standards before you ship the thing, before you show it to somebody And you have to have that lofty goal to make it worth doing, but you have to know when to view the thing through that prism and when to view the thing through the prism of somebody wanting to just get the idea out and down and begun. Too often we're concerned about the end at the beginning and it stops us, you know? Oh yeah, it killed me. And, you know, there were some life circumstances that were contributing to this too, but it really sent me in this spiral. And two podcasts kind of entered my life in that moment. The first one was Marin. Sure. And with Marin, it was like, I came to love the first 10 minutes of Marin so much because he kind of constantly lives in that place of angst. And 
it made me feel like, oh, maybe I'm not crazy or at least I'm not alone. But then you came on Marin's show and you told your whole story and there was this sense of like, oh, actually, maybe there's a way out. Like maybe there's there's a rhythm of life that allows for a certain kind of creative freedom without all the terror. So it started a long journey for me. I finished the book. The book actually comes out in a couple of weeks. But it, it also started this journey for me listening to your show and listening to all these people kind of talking about coming up to this precipice and going, I want to do this risky thing. That it sent me away from what I was doing with ministry and into what I'm doing now with Harbor Media and with the work we're doing in the podcasting world. And who knows, maybe I'll write like my great American novel at the end of all of, <laughs> all of this nonsense. I mean, that is a huge, big deal. Dude. Yeah. Um, huge. Yeah. Well, and I, again, I say all that in part to just say thank you to you. So this show is about, you know, generally speaking, this show is about people of faith talking about them finding their way, their journey. There's some threads to this show that I often find echoing some threads that I've seen in the moment. And because your show is so momentous to me, I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to kind of draw out of you some of the things that maybe you've learned from doing the show and from talking to these people. And, you know, I have great regard for you, man, and I love our conversations so I'm, I'm happy to do this. Thanks. First, I think before we dig into kind of what you've learned, I'd love for you to just share sort of the short version of um, the longer story that you shared with Mark Marin and you've shared other places about your journey and your, your experience of being blocked and eventually becoming the writer and doing the things you wanted to do. It's funny because right, mine is a different kind of a faith journey because <laughs> it required finding a way to believe in something that seemed impossible. And that was that I could become an artist. You know, I didn't think about it in the beginning in terms of earning a living as an artist, which I think helped a lot. You know, I just knew my daughter and I were talking about this the other day. I had this feeling that I needed to find some method by which I could express emotions, observations, points of view in a way that would reach people. I, I don't even know that I was thinking about reaching people. If I'm, I want to dig in here and, and get it right. Um, it was like I knew that I had to express some stuff. And I had to express it in some artistic form. It wasn't the kind of thing that I could express through business, through sort of normal just interaction, that somehow I was observing parts of the world in a way that moved me, and I needed a way to transfer those emotions, those observations through some medium. I didn't know at the time if that medium was going to be the stage as a comedian, if that medium was going to be the recording studio as a record maker, or I thought it was probably going to be writing in some way, and I didn't know if it would be film, if it would be memoir, if it would be novelistic. The problem is that I couldn't manifest anything. I was completely blocked. I had no ability to look at myself and give myself the gift, the permission to fail as an artist. I was somehow more comfortable in just not trying to be one. And it was a painful state, man. You know, I came to believe, and it's what helped me break through this state, that when you give in to being blocked, when you become thwarted, something inside of you dies. And mm. like any other kind of death, there's toxicity connected to it. And I realized what finally happened is my son was born, my first child, our first child. 
And I was scared that I would become toxic to him, to Amy, to whatever other kids we would have because I wasn't living this life I felt I was meant to live. I wasn't finding a voice to express this stuff that was welling up in me. I knew I wanted to tell my my kids that they could go be anything, that they could chase a dream, and that I wasn't. It got to the point, I mean, there was a day where I was a night, really, I was with my office, and I had a good job. I was a successful person from a financial standpoint, and I had a great marriage. And my wife was constantly encouraging me and constantly had the faith that I didn't have in me and my ability. But I was sitting in my office. I'd never been a cigarette smoker in my life. I was 29, almost 30. And I had started that week or something smoking cigarettes and I was eating badly. And I looked at myself, I knew it was time. And I went to my best friend, David Levine, who's my creative partner to this day. And he gave me Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. And I had been reading Anthony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within, which helped me figure out I needed to make a change. And then The Artist's Way sort of showed me how. And I started doing morning pages, which is three freehand pages every morning of writing. And through that began to break open whatever the lock was that was preventing me from you know, coming forth with this stuff. Dave and I committed to writing our first script together. Soon thereafter, I walked into a poker club for the first time and I realized there was a movie in it. I called Dave in the middle of the night. And I said, I think this is the movie. And we met very early every morning in a storage space underneath our apartment that Amy cleared out for us. And we met every day and we wrote our first script. And luckily for us, we had an ability to do it. And the first script was Rounders, which became a movie. And that launched our career and, and yeah. enabled me to change my life in the direction of it. I was going over some of the episodes of the podcast today and three that stuck out to me were the Alex Goldman, PJ Vote interview. Love it, yeah. The Big J Okerson interview is amazing. The John Acuff interview. And those three stuck out in particular because I think they're prime examples of guys of people who come to those crossroads kinds of moments. With Big J, like he was at that <laughs> moment when you talked to him. That's It makes that interview really special. I guess I'm curious your take on before someone is blocked. What are the forces that contribute to us getting to this place where we're not allowing ourselves to do the things we feel like we're made to do? What pushes us into that corner, you think? Well, like psychotherapists would have one answer, I think. Probably um, witch doctors would have another. Um, I... <laughs> I think that it's fear-based, but I, I mean, often, from what I've observed, there are a few different things that happen. One of the great things about The Artist's Way is that Julia Cameron kind of makes you figure out where there was a fork in the road you didn't even realize existed and you went one way because you were scared of going the other. You know, she helps you figure out, oh, you know, what was an interaction that made you feel foolish, let's say, for showing a piece of work or something like that. Right. But part of it is, I think, when you're young. I know when I was young, I had a friend. I interviewed him on the podcast. His name is Peter Zizzo. He um, was a child prodigy at guitar. But I would look at Peter, and he was a great actor when we were kids, too. And I would look at Peter, and he just seemed like what an artist was. It mm. seemed like it was an immutable characteristic was that he was gifted at the arts. And... I mean, he was one of the best guitarists like in America when we were 14. He was written about in magazines. And I would look at that and it seemed, even though I knew he practiced every day or played every day, it just seemed like magic to me. And it seemed like a magic I didn't possess. And I think I then went and tried to confirm that in other places, right? 
So you would look at the woman, the girl, when you're 15, who could walk on stage in the musical and just kind of own the stage and be the character. And, and you would think, well, that person is supposed to act. Because what none of us can see is the hours of thought and practice and work. And perhaps what happened is that 15-year-old girl was seven when she identified a love for this stuff. Mm. So what I ended up realizing was that it all comes back to trying to locate your obsessions, the things that fascinate you. And that if you really follow them and recommit to them and try to figure them out. You know, I realized like most of my friends are writers. I related to people who are writers and artists more than anybody else. That's the stuff that touched me the most. It's the thing I was most interested in, I wanted to talk about. Mm. But I thought they were other and that I wasn't other. I wasn't someone who could access that stuff. And I think that's what happens to us. I think we find stories out there. You know, I love the Michael Lewis book, Unknowing Project or something, an Unbecoming Project. Here, I'm just going to look. While we're talking, I'm going to look at the computer in, in, in my, my hand here because I want to get it right. I think it's the Unknowing Project. But Michael Lewis's last book talks about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And these are social scientists who figured out the sort of faulty ways we make decisions, things like confirmation bias. But one thing is we're always looking to put a narrative on events and it's, we will overweight things and underweight things. And I, I certainly did that. I put some pieces of information together in a way that told myself I wasn't born to be able to do that stuff. And I had other gifts, like I had other abilities. And so I chased those things down and those some many people could have had a happy, content life doing those things. But there was a stirring in me. That thing called too loudly to me to ignore, ultimately. Mm. I had no choice but to, I guess I had a choice. I could listen to it or I could like drink and smoke. I was never a drinker, but I guess I could have become a drinker. <laughs> I ultimately had no choice because I realized what's most important, that I'd be a good father, that I'd be good to my family. What's holding me back from that? This unhappy feeling I have at work because it makes me come home and feel like a failure. And if you feel like a failure, even though by all outward sort of signs you're successful, there's something messed up going on in you. And so I had to look at that and recognize it and then figure out how to change it. And then I was lucky that I had a predisposition because I do think talent comes into it. The, the problem is until you apply rigor, you don't know if you are talented. So you kind of have to apply rigor. Luckily, I had a knack for this stuff. Right. But maybe it's not luck. You know, I was obsessed. I watched stuff over and over and over. I listened to stuff. I read everything. So I was, mm -hmm. I was just engaging with this material. I just wasn't doing it. And it's odd now. You know, my life has been this for so long. I'm 51. This all happened when I was 29 and 30. And it did feel like, those are the things that made me really, you know, come alive. That I'd hit an open mic on Christopher Street. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I should just start doing it. Mm. You know, I did it and it worked and I made great friends. Dan Soder, who's been on 23 episodes of Billions and will be in the third season of Billions too, is a stand-up comic and he and I met doing open mics in the city and he's like a little brother to me. I was reading something the other day. It's by a guy who's kind of a guru in the startup world. And they're asking him, you know, what are the things you're looking for? And he's an angel investor. What are the things you're looking for? And one of the things he mentioned is, I almost look for somebody who has a sense of the inevitability of their success. And I wonder, as you see it, for people who want to be artists, is that true as well? Because it strikes me like, 
I get well, it in the startup world. I, th- I can, I, you know. I don't know, man, because like the line between, I've said this before, but it is true. You know, the line between being delusional, <laughs> being an artist is very thin, right? Because you're crazy right up until it works. That is right. the same as in a startup in a certain way. Yeah. I mean, because that messianic thing can be bad. I mean, you and I have talked about that in a different context. I know you feel it too, that it can be a bad thing. And so when you have that certainty, you just have to run some checks on yourself Mm -hmm. in some way. I mean, it's important to know, like, I didn't think that the thing I was going to start and write right away was going to be great. I just knew I had to start doing it to feel like a person. Like the whole journey in a large part to me seems to be to put yourself in a position where you're able to be comfortable in your own skin, being who you are, not trying to fake the funk, not putting on airs or not putting on false humility, but just being able to exist as you are, taking people as they are, and trying to get down to react to things and situations with as little self-consciousness as possible, as little posturing as possible, and to try to just meet people and situations the best of yourself and as they are. And for me, the path to that was through the arts, it turned out. So I don't think about things in terms of successful commercial outcomes, I never have. But I think of all this stuff in terms of some kind of personal evolution. That ties into personal moral evolution too, right? It's tied into, for me, all of it is about how to be good and what to do to put myself in a position where my instinct and my actions are for the benefit, not the detriment of people, right? The more you're in a pursuit of something that makes you feel good for the right reasons, the better likelihood that you're not gonna react competitively, but instead cooperatively. And those aren't all things that I thought about then, but I'll tell you they're things that I felt even if I couldn't put them words on. And that's why the podcast that I do examines this stuff. By the way, that's why a lot of the work that I do examines this stuff. If you look at our movies and shows, these kind of themes like live in those things because though they're really uh, fascinating, they remain fascinating. funny you use the word react and that strikes me as a really important word in all of this stuff because without unblocking all that kind of stuff reactivity is like it's all you've got you're you're a raw nerve and so you're you're reactive in particular i mean i noticed this in myself but i've I've, again i've heard lots of people on your show talking about this the reactivity towards the success of others how how much it you know i mean marin says you know he took it as a personal offense every time someone around him would succeed which i think is hilarious before I did this stuff, when I would hear of somebody who like, wrote a screenplay or did something, I would react. Now, even in my 20s, I was pretty good at checking myself, but the emotion that would arise before I checked myself right. would definitely be like crap with stronger words that I'm not using on your show. <laughs> but that would be like my initial sort of instinct, you know, why that guy? Why not me? Even though I hadn't done it, I hadn't done the work, you know? 
but then as soon as you start doing the work, that's the thing, right? I, I don't want to bundle it with the success. But now I guess we toil for 30 years and nothing happens. It's hard to, like in, in, we live in the real world, it's hard. Yeah. But the very act of figuring out something that makes you feel alive in a good way and doing that on a daily basis helps me to not become, not default to those other postures. Yeah. I loved your interview with Don Winslow. You know, he talks about uh, this and, and, and I love how he says, you know, he was like, uh, okay, I can do two pages, you know, I'm going to do two pages a day. And it is the smallest step towards this thing that feels like such a mountainous obstacle. I'm curious related to that. Like, are there, I imagine you've seen a lot of patterns emerge in these conversations of people breaking through in similar ways. I wonder, if, have you noticed that? Have you identified certain things that seem to help? I have, but I kind of actively avoid building a narrative of my own about that because as an interviewer, I don't want to be anticipating. So I think I've consciously, I haven't done the mapping thing. You know, I haven't asked even... I haven't asked an intern to like, because I could, to put that together, like the commonalities. I could definitely mm -hmm. write a piece about it or a series of essays, but I, I want to kind of live there with the people I'm talking to. And I don't want to like guess it. So I'll ask about routine. I mean, you pick that up in, when you listen to Ferris's podcast or something too, or James Altucher's podcast, that definitely there are certain ways people prime the punk creatively. And that is the one thing that even if I didn't want to consciously notice it, the thing Winslow said, most people who found a way to do this kind of work have some routine that allows them to get in a flow state or they think about how to be in a flow state or that, you know, mm -hmm. they want to be in a place where self-criticism, self-doubt, self-consciousness dissipates so mm -hmm. that they can produce the work. So some people do it by taking walks. Some people do it by trying to, you know, write before the sun comes up. Some people do it by journaling, meditating. There are all these techniques, but that's tactics in a way mm -hmm. that you're talking about there. But the and bigger idea the, is this idea of... I think the bigger idea is like, yeah, yeah. what finding a way to get in a, some kind of flow state. Flow state even sounds magical. I want to be much more like sort of brick and mortar than woo-woo and magical. Mm -hmm. All flow state means to me is the conscious thoughts telling you you're worthless, go away. <laughs> and so you're able to, for a period of time, two pages, three pages, a half hour, 15 minutes, you can do work and quiet those voices. To me, that, that's what I mean by flow state. I don't mean, you know, yeah. talk about tennis players or something and how they achieve that, that they become unconscious, they're in the zone. The moment you try to chase the zone, I think you're really making it harder for yourself. You just want to try to find tools to silence the doubts and allow you to move forward. And whatever tricks you have um, that you learn to do that for yourself, that's the thing to figure out. Yeah. I heard an NBA shooting coach one time give a, give us a lecture. And it was really, it struck me as being very similar to a lot of the things that Julia Cameron says, that essentially his job is way less about the mechanics, you know, an NBA forward doesn't need help with his mechanics. Uh, he needs help. So he's not thinking about the mechanics and not sure. thinking about what's wrong or the hitch that he has or whatever. I mean, that's what the golf coaches say too, for sure. Yeah. Uh, over your years, you've, you know, you've had movies that were big successes. I imagine you've had a projects that you started that didn't go places that, sure, were, yes. that aren't on your IMDb page. I'm curious with setbacks, 
in comparison, there's the there's this feeling of being blocked, and then there's this feeling of like setbacks, disappointment, all of that. Sure. So they are different, and they make you they they make you uh, they hit you in a different way. Uh, <laughs> Like being blocked is one sort of sensation, but sure, per- failures. Look, I'm I'm not in the sugarcoating business. I mean, failure stinks and it hurts. But the the recipe, man, is always the same to turn it around. The prescription is just to do more work, and especially if it's work that you get something out of. I am lucky, and it's not just lucky because I um, identified it and then did it. But I do do a thing that makes me feel more alive than less alive after I've done it or as I'm doing. So the process for me of writing, even if it's a hard, I write for an hour, I write for two hours. At the end of that time, I feel I've used myself for good purpose and I'm a better person for it. Mm. And so the work itself is elevating. So if a movie bombs like Runner Runner, which was a bad experience for me and a bad outcome, I definitely had weeks of feeling down about it. But each day in those weeks, I had moments of being elevated because there were moments where I was writing the next thing. Mm. And also, you know, we're talking about work, but the other side of it, which even I give more weight to, is like I did marry the right person and I have a family life that's like incredibly enriching to me. Mm -hmm. Nothing helps you get out of that kind of punk more than looking at your daughter and figuring out how to help her get through her day mm-hmm. or to help your son solve a problem that he's having, right? The, the moment you give of yourself, you get right out of mm-hmm. the thing that's bothering you. So do setbacks suck? Of course they do. Do they hurt? They hurt a lot. But I've luckily, I, I, um, I eat too much and I'm too fat. But other than that, I don't have any vices. So I don't default to any other systems that make things worse for me. Mm-hmm. So in a setback, my partner at work is my lifelong best friend. My best friend in life is my wife. And I have these kids who are now like, you know, adult. My son is 21. My, our daughter's 17. So luckily those things, the work and the family for me come together to help buffer the bad results. Again, I, I won't sugarcoat it. Yeah. All that stuff doesn't mean you never have a bad week. In fact, you hate your, your you hate yourself a little because you look at your wife who you love and your kids who are perfect, you're beautiful, and you know your work situation. You, you come here and you got something to work on, and the movie's bombed and it's got a nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and <laughs> and even I feel worthless for a few days. But what I don't do is I don't feel worthless for two months, hmm. and I don't try to run from what I'm feeling, you know, and I don't try to pretend I'm not feeling. What I do is I journal, I do the morning pages, I meditate, I take a long walk, and I'm doing the next thing so that as it gets momentum, I can transcend mm-hmm. that feeling. And at first, it's just for a little while, right? Those moments when you're lost in the work, you can't think about anything else. You're mm-hmm. you're not, th- and then hopefully, and it's how it's worked for me my whole life now, it's 29 or 30, by doing it, it accretes, the good emotion accretes, and then you leave that thing behind. And as you get older, also, you realize, well, the successes and the failures kind of even out. All you have is sort of the thing that you can control and the thing that Mm -hmm. you do. One of the things you talk about a lot that's pretty, I think it's pretty countercultural is is exactly what you just said about your family. 
and you you don't like big narratives, but the narrative that's popular in the culture is that the artist has to sacrifice everything for his art. So family goes by the wayside, kids go by the wayside, you know, the artist is this titan, but then when, you know, his adult children hate him. Why? That's fears people have about becoming an artist, right? They feel like if they, and I think I probably had some of this too. If you become an artist, you will become an ass. Hmm. Uh, that word's in the Bible, so I can say it. Yeah, we'll let you um, say that one. <laughs> um, but that if, if you know, I'm saying, you know, that if you do, you will become a miserable person. But well, of because course, so many artists were no, miserable people. Are, I mean, for every one of those people, there's Ron Howard out there who's yeah. like the greatest guy in the world. You know, look, is it possible that a certain kind of genius makes a certain kind of demands? I guess it is possible, right? Does Elon Musk have to sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff to be Elon Musk? Does Bob Dylan? Maybe. I was never going to be Bob Dylan, you know, and I was just going to try to be the best artist that I could be while being the best human that I could be. Neither of those things for me have primacy. Could that limit me as an artist? Maybe. Doesn't limit me as a a father and, and a husband. And those things were never less important. And I don't think they limit you as an artist in truth. I think when people are young and they're pursuing the arts with everything that they have, look, to become successful at anything, you may have to put blinders on sometimes. That makes sense to me. But the idea that that's a continual thing, Seth Godin, who's you know a, a close friend and, and also someone I admire tremendously, who's written a bunch of books, incredible artist, bestseller, He's a great dad and husband. I've watched him up close with his amazing sons. And I can point to many examples of of that. I think it's an excuse. I think if you're in a marriage that's kind of crummy or you're not someone who wants those responsibilities, you know, you can put on a beret and tell yourself that for your painting, you have to go cheat and screw around. But I think that's, I uh, I maybe just put on the beret and go home. with things going well, have you ever struggled with malaise? Have you ever reached a point where you go, well, Ocean's 13 did great, and... No, I mean, even in success, you know, look, I'm having the most commercially successful moment of my life now, and I often say that I'm so glad that it happened as a a 50-year-old, 49, 50, 51, because I'm so ready for... Look, I've had an incredibly lucky and fortunate and great career. I've earned a great living. I've never had to worry about where I was going to live or how I was going to feed my kids or send them to college. Like, I've been incredibly lucky in that way. But the level of success with billions is entirely different, uh, just its place in the culture. I've had moments of it, Rounders and Ocean's 13, and other moments of things mattering, my podcast mattering to people. But I've had enough time to get used to all this before this happened. And I so I just am in a totally deep place of appreciation for all the good. Nine years ago, my mother died, and I had a really, really bad few months of malaise, depression, whatever you want to call it, anxiety, because uh, that kind of thing, and that particular thing, my mother loved me so much, and it was such a pure love, that to have that taken from the world was crushing. So yeah, but that's not, you know, 
it wouldn't have mattered if I if I was the king of Siam or I was, right. uh, you know, a, a hobo. Um, my mom dying would have made me have a feeling of malaise, as you say. Sure. But short of those kind of life things, no, I mean, I'm deeply appreciative of it. And again, it comes back to the fact that tomorrow, look, writing is really hard. So tomorrow, I, so the show is on on a Sunday night and a lot of people watch and everyone's tweeting about it and the recaps are great. And the president of the network calls and tells Dave and me how happy he is. But then the next morning, I have to get up and write the next episode or the next idea. Yeah. And that's really hard. And it's bracingly hard, but it's involving. So then you're not, I'm not the guy getting those calls. I'm the guy trying to solve what WAGS has to do for acts. And I, it's very difficult to figure out how to do that. And so that just brings me right back into the present. You know, my, the podcast episode I did with my wife is a lot of people's favorite because we talk a lot about how hard it is to live in the present and what a gift she has for that. And one of the things, because right, if you're really here, if you're really right here, then all that other stuff also falls away and you're really alive. Hmm. The work is part of what helps me do that. That's great. Hey, just a side note, I want to say, I'll tell you how much I appreciated the scene of Wags in the sushi bar going off on the guy. It's yeah. like you see it all the time and you're just you, or you go to lunch with somebody and they're just they're just sloshing ginger and wasabi everywhere. You want to yeah. be wags. You want to be the self-righteous guy going, that's not how you do that. Can't. You just in life. You just can't. Yeah. But wags can. Wags can. <laughs> highly satisfying. The wag can. It really is. That's great. We've talked a little bit about your daily routines. We've, we've, you and I have talked about this before. I'd love for you to share That's, your reading routine. You have an enormous appetite for books. Every time we turn around on your podcast, you're like, well, you read this book, you read this book. And that's a lifetime of reading, though. You know, yeah. when people remark about how many books I've read, yeah. I'm lucky I have a really good memory, so I remember them. And that's just native. Like, I've just sure. always had an incredible memory for what I read. Fiction, you know, if I read a book, I really am good at remembering it. I used to read even up until billions, you know, three or four books a week. I can't anymore. I, I just don't actually have the hours, but I still read a book or two a week, certainly mm-hmm. a book a week. In the least traditionally masculine thing I could ever <laughs> admit to, I take long baths yeah. and I read. Uh, I felt better about admitting this after Penn Jillette admitted it. Uh, he does it too. But I take long, I take like an hour long bath and I read. Mm-hmm. And I do that a few times a week. And I read fast. And so that's one way that I read. And I listen. I never used to listen to books on audio. But now, again, it's like I have to to be reading. So I've saved two Murakami books. There are two Murakami books that I hadn't read, but now I'm reading. He's my favorite living author, and I've saved them. And I'm almost done with one now, maybe his best book. And I've been reading it, and then I had to take a long car ride. And I was like, all right, I'm going to see if this can work. And I downloaded it because fiction is very hard for me on audio. But I had like a two-hour car ride, and it was great. It's hard. You, when you're reading fiction, though, you concentrate in a different way. So after like 45 minutes or an hour, it actually feels like you've read for that long, unlike listening to a podcast or nonfiction, yeah. and I have to stop it. But I can now do sort of like 35 or 40-minute bursts of audiobook listening, and I don't mind it. But I still prefer reading on paper, reading a book. Yeah. No Kindle in the bathtub, I imagine. Books, man. No. <laughs> I guess I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about Billions itself, kind of the process that, like, where did the show come from? Where's the idea even come from? Well, we've been pretty... researching. 
Dave and I had been researching hedge funds for a really long time. We almost did a show about them for another network. And then we were also really interested in the power that United States attorneys have. And we were talking to an agent and he told us that he had a client who had a similar interest, similar idea. That was Andrew Ross Sorkin, the New York Times writer. And so this agent introduced us to Andrew and we sat around talking about it and together came up with the idea for the show. And then we wrote the pilot in a flurry at the end of 2013, I think. And it was an incredible experience writing it because we really felt like we were telling a story that hadn't been told in the way that we were going to tell it. And I, I knew, I, re- I always, I try not to think about results, as I said, but when we were writing it every day, I would come in and read what we'd written and I'd feel like, man, if we nail this, it's special. And I had this clear sense that it was going to go, that, that we would, I knew we'd sell it. We'd gotten to a point where you, basically we would sell a pilot, but I felt like, oh, we're going to get to make this show and this is going to be on television. People are going to like it. It was really an incredible experience writing it. And it was in the shadow of Runner Runner failing. And so it was great to really have that to, to work on. Mm. I mean, the themes seem so of the moment, like maybe even more so than than you had planned. <laughs> no, I mean, we were really interested in examining why certain characteristics, like the kind of charm that these characters have and the kind of verbal acuity that they have. And we wanted to see characters and how they would go through the world who echoed certain powerful people, you know, wealth, charm, verbal skills. We were really interested in how far they could take you. And I mean, why the world bends to that kind of charisma, even before this horrible current situation. (laughs) Are you going to post this before the nuclear annihilation, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) I certainly hope so. Things that lead to the urtexts of the next uh, manifestation of humanity. Is this going to be like one of the things they find in the rubble? and mm. listen to thinking it was far more important and deeper than it is. <laughs> Look, man, I'm, I'm screaming to an echo chamber and I don't know how to, I really don't know how to process that this monster is the president. I can't even make any I sense of it. I cannot make sense of it. And, and it's humbling, like in the true sense of it, because I, I must know nothing. I, I, I'm, I don't understand how my fellow Americans can look at this person and hear him and want him with his finger on the nuclear button. I can't, I can't process it. I just can't process it. Yeah. It's beyond my can. It's beyond my ability to process. It really, it really truly is. I mean, I think I would need, you know, I would need to believe in the stuff you believe in to make sense of this. (laughs) Well, times, you know, sadly. Yeah, well, I'm happy to help you there if that ever becomes an issue. All right, my, my last question that I've got, and if there's anything else you want to talk about that you think you want to throw on the show, we can totally go there. But no, I'm, I mean, this is great. Whatever you want. Um, my, my, my last question, very trivial. Have you gotten to meet uh, David Lynch now that you're both Showtime uh, peers? No, and I mean, obviously, you know, he's given me so much with Transcendental Meditation. I, I decided to learn it after reading Catching the Big Fish, his book, and I learned through the David Lynch Foundation. Uh, oh, wow. And I think he's a great artist. But... Um, and I recommend that book to anybody. Catching the Big Fish by David Lynch is really worth your time. It's about both meditation and filmmaking and about how he uses one to help the other. I haven't met Lynch. I would love to meet him. I'd love to meet Murakami and Michael Stipe. I've met Michael Stipe, but I want him on the podcast. 
No, I haven't met him. Man, this has been great to talk to you about this stuff. You ask great questions and I I love the way that uh, you look at the world and process it. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you. And like I said, you've had a profound impact and I know you will continue to. And I know I'm not alone. I know there's a lot of folks who, because of your show, because of your generosity on, on social media, on Vine and all these different places, you're you're a permission giver. You're somebody who's looking at people and going, you have the right to go jump off that cliff and see if you can fly. I want to remind them that they don't need anybody's permission, hmm. right? That's the thing. So yeah. all I want to remind them of is that they have permission and you have permission. That's great. Well, hey, thanks for making time for this. It means a lot. Hey, man. Happy to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, good to see you. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Today's show was produced by Harbor Media and the Narrativo Group. It was recorded and mixed by Mark Owens. It was edited by TJ Hester. Our music is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Big thanks to both of them once again for all the ways that they support us and help us. This is the last show for 2017. We hope you've enjoyed the year. If you're just now discovering us, go back and check out some of our other episodes. If you haven't listened to season one, there's great stuff in there from Alyssa Wilkinson, Brett Lott, Gabe Lyons, and many more people. You can also go to harbormedia.com to check out the other things that we're doing, the other shows that we've produced, and other work that's coming in the future. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next year. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.